Good morning. Welcome once again. Uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And last week we looked at the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And our text this morning falls right on the heels uh, of that account. Uh, Mark often does this anyway, right? He, he says immediately and then, immediately and then. But actually the events that transpire in our text happen immediately. They are uh, immediately following uh, the feeding of the 5,000. And so we're, we're going to look at this as Jesus sends his disciples out into the Sea of Galilee. As he goes up uh, into the hills to pray, uh, we'll see what happens uh, in this miraculous story. So let's turn to the text. We're going to be reading Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56. Mark uh, chapter 6. 45 to 56. There's two sections here that we're going to be looking at. I'm going to be focusing a, a lot of my attention on the first part, but we'll, we'll touch on the second part as well. Hear God's word. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to, Beth, to Beth, Bethsaida, while he, was dis, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and they moored to the, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this word in which he reveals his glory and power and love. And we ask that you'd reveal to us this morning to our hearts uh, the glory and love of Christ, that we would see Jesus, that we would worship him. Lord, help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know what you all are thinking. Here comes another nautical illustration, because that's all I ever do. But you know what? I'm going to spare you. I, I've got nothing. I, you know, I suppose I could talk about times where I faced strong headwinds and while I was sailing or rowing or something to that effect. But, but as I come to this text, um, I, I don't feel like I have anything to say. I have no story of anyone ever walking on water, save what we read here in Scripture. There is no correlation. I have no experience of somebody coming across the waves by foot. And this account stands out as one of the most beguiling and interesting gospel narratives, something that is, is beyond our expectation. Um, and one person noted that it's one of the most oft-painted pictures 
of the Gospels throughout history. Now, I have no way of verifying that, so I, I'm not even going to try. But I sort of understand why it is so other, so out there, so completely beyond our experience that we, we try as we envision it in our minds or we paint it on, on, a, on a canvas. We try to capture all the incongruencies um, of the text, of this wild scene. The unbothered figure of Jesus strolling along as he crosses a tempestuous sea. It is incongruous. While a laboring and exhausted crew struggles with all their might, wondering if they'll ever make it across. But it, it not only captures our imaginations, it is also a miracle that bothers some skeptics and unbelievers often really struggle with this particular miracle. And, you know, while they might look on some mundane miracles, like healings and casting out demons and raising people from the dead, for whatever reason, this, this is too much. It's a strange thing, but maybe you felt that. This is just a little too strange. It feels like pure fantasy. Raising the dead and healing the sick and casting out demons don't seem as big a deal as waltzing across a stormy sea. Well, I've been wrestling to figure out in my own mind why this of all the miracles of Jesus is either one that captures our imagination or one that causes us consternation. Um, why, what, what is it about this miracle? And I've tentatively concluded, and I say that because this is my own sort of rumination, I've tentatively concluded that it's because we have a very difficult time seeing Jesus for who he is. And, and this text is all about telling us, showing us in a magnificent way who Jesus is. He is the Lord over all creation who draws near to his people. And this morning, I want us to see Jesus the Lord God himself who draws near to us with compassion and with grace. That's my hope this morning, um, that we would see Jesus. And then we'll look at it in three ways. We'll see Jesus in all his glory. We'll, we'll think about our own blindness, beholding our own blindness to Jesus. And then finally, seeing Jesus in all his compassion, in all his compassion. So those three things. First, seeing Jesus in all his glory. But before we get to seeing Jesus in his glory, I think the first thing that the text really points to is the fact that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us. There is uh, an abruptness, of, as I've already mentioned, typical of Mark that's in our text. We have that word immediately. Um, and it's immediately following the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and this is an interesting uh, event that Mark doesn't sort of express in its totality what followed the feeding of the 5,000. We get some more information from the Gospel of John. John says, knowing this was after the feeding of the 5,000, he says, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There was... Uh, this idea that they wanted to take Jesus after this miraculous feeding and make him king. And what they mean by that is establish him as the messianic king who would 
deliver them from the hands of Rome. And so he withdraws. And in his withdrawing, he takes his disciples. It says he made them. Um, and he, he puts them on a boat. He said, get on the boat and go to the other side. I'm going up to the mountain. This is not the time for me to be coronated in this way. So there is this abruptness, this sense of, okay, I'm sending the crowds away. You're going over to the other side, and I'm going up to the mountain to be with my heavenly Father and to pray. This must have been a very confusing moment for the disciples. Weary and overwhelmed with everything that had transpired, wondering, along with the crowds, whether it was his time to crown him as the messianic king or not, um, and, you know, make the plans for a coup, so to speak. Um, and then all of a sudden they're sent away. They're sent off into the boat. It's already late and they have to row across the sea and the wind is picking up. And in that moment, the disciples might have been tempted to think, does Jesus understand us? Does he understand what's going on? We've been at work uh, for weeks. We've just come back and then we had to go and we thought we were going to get respite. But in reality, we ended up having to work some more. And now he's sending us back into a boat to work even more. Does he, does he know our hearts? Does he understand our weariness? And I, w- I want to talk a little bit later about their hardness of heart. Uh, that'll come in the next section. But right now, I just want us to see that Jesus knows, that he knows them, that by sending them off alone to face the wind and waves, he is creating an opportunity for him to reveal himself to them, that, that he might go and show them that he knows who they are and he knows their needs and that he is God. Of course, they don't, they don't see that, but that he knows what they need exactly what they need, and he sends them off. But in the meantime, Jesus goes and prays on the hilltop. He goes up to be with his heavenly Father and to commune with him. But there's also something else that's going on here. He's up on the hills surrounding the Lake of Galilee, and they completely surround the lake. And he's up on the hills, and he's looking down on the lake. And he's watching his disciples over the course of the night. Now, you know, was there a full moon? Was he able to see? You know, is that miraculous? Uh, I don't know. All we're told is that he looked out and realized, saw that they could not make any headway um, and that it was painful for them. But he saw them. He looked down on them. And so there the Lord, preparing himself to go and reveal himself, was doing something quite remarkable by sending his disciples out. Now, grant me a little bit of leeway here. I'm going to see if I can test a little bit of your Old Testament knowledge, because I don't want to go into the details. But the Old Testament prophets often did sort of miraculous, or sometimes not even miraculous, but they did picture signs um, to point to some spiritual reality. An example of this is, a big example of this is Hosea marrying a harlot to picture the unfaithfulness of Israel and God's faithfulness to her despite her unfaithfulness. So that's a picture. Hosea was commanded to marry this woman, and they lived in a way physically um, that showed this truth that the Lord wanted to reveal to the hearts of Israelites. Or Ezekiel, and there's various points in Ezekiel where he does these little, he'll even set up dioramas. Um, to, to show some spiritual truth or act out various scenes to depict God's judgment. He'll, he'll take some physical reality and make it happen. Or 
the Lord, when he taught Jonah about his mercy and judgment, grows a shade plant and then kills it to talk about uh, his own mercy and judgment. Um, and, and I think something similar is going on here with the disciples. He's painting a picture for them. Here they are struggling against the elements, making no headway, uncertain about what lies ahead, having some fear and terror along with that. And here the Lord over the elements was depicting for them their own struggle of faith, their own tiring, unworthy, trying to do things on their own. And I think the Lord Jesus is doing something here. He sees them and he knows them and he desires that they might see and know him for who he is. And he's going to use this moment, not just for him, but for us as well. Because it is with you and I that the Lord sees you and he sees me and he knows you and he knows me and he knows us better than we know ourselves. He wants to reveal himself to us and he sees us. But now we get to the heart of this. Who is Jesus? That's what he wants us to see. Well, Jesus is the Lord God who draws near to us, to his people. It says at the fourth watch, it's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in those pre-dawn hours when there's a little bit of light. Um, The text says he went out to them walking on the sea. And then it says these very enigmatic words. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. Now, our family went on a hike on the beautiful day yesterday. And such strange times are these that as we went on this hike, there were whole families, including teenagers, on a hike on a you know, random Saturday in the middle of May or in the beginning of May. And I, I, that was odd in and of itself to see whole families walking. But the other odd thing is that we would occasionally pass these groups or individuals and uh, we would pass by them. And what I mean by that is we would walk as far away uh, from them as the trail would allow. We would even sort of turn our backs to them and barely give them a hello um, and walk as quickly as possible. And I think when we read that Jesus meant to pass by them, that's kind of the picture we have, that he was strolling along the water and he just kind of like, oh, there's a boat. And, and, but he, he meant to go past them. Um, that would be a strange thing. What is Jesus' purpose in saying this? You know, I, I, he walked past them and, and they look and they see a, what they thought was a ghost. And um, this just adds strangeness to this entire fantastical event. Well, commentators have wrestled over the significance of these words. And I think there's three reasonable explanations. And I take this from one of the commentators, and I found him very helpful. Um, but maybe, this is the first possibility, maybe Mark is sort of speaking from the perspective of the disciples on the boat in that moment when they saw this ghost. And so you could translate it something like, uh, it seemed as if Jesus, whom we thought was a ghost at the time, was just passing us by. This ghost was just kind of on the move. That's one interpretation. There's another way we could read this. Uh, Maybe it's a a translation issue, um, hermeneutical issue, a a way to understand what the words themselves mean. And so we should read it more as um, an explanation, um, like an explanatory side comment, something like this. For he intended 
to pass by their way, kind of. He intended to go to them. And it's a little awkward, but that's possible as well. But there is a third option that I found very insightful from uh, this commentator. One that I think gets at the very heart of the text. Uh, the language pass by carries with it some deep Old Testament freight. And what I mean by that is there, there's, there's some language of pass by in the Old Testament that, that is, I think, significant to this event. And I, I just want to highlight this for a moment. If you remember, if you can think back to your Old Testament um, stories, if you remember these stories, um, you'll remember that uh, the people of God had sinned. Uh, they, they were going through the, the um, they were going through the wilderness. They had met God at Mount Sinai. They had sinned against God by making a golden calf. Um, and the Lord was angry with them. And Moses was interceding for the people of God. And uh, he did it multiple times. And the last time he pleaded that God would go with the people of God, that God would go in their midst as their God to the promised land, that he wouldn't abandon them. Um, and God relents and he's merciful and he promises to go with the people of God. And Moses is overjoyed and he desires to see the glory of God. Desires to see the wondrous glory of God. And God says, okay, Moses, you can't see my face. But I will pass by you. And you'll get to see the backside of my glory. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. And I'm going to pass by you. And you're going to see my glory. Um, that language pass by. God drew near to Moses and revealed himself by passing by him. And I think Jesus is doing something similar here. Um, he is revealing his glory to his disciples by passing by them. It's not in some sense he's headed somewhere else, but what he wants to do is he wants to walk by, him, by them as the Lord over creation, walking on waves in the midst of a tempest and showing his power, his might, his glory, his wondrous uh, personhood to his disciples that they might know him. They wanted to pass by him. Here, the God of heaven and earth drew near. What an amazing truth. And there is another hint in the text that this is the best explanation. When the disciples cry out in terror because they think he's an apparition, he immediately spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, it is I is ambiguous. It could simply mean, It is I, Jesus. Hey, -o, it's me. But again, these words carry certain freight that I think John particularly picks up in his gospel when he's drawing attention to the reality that this man, Jesus, is not just a man alone, but he is the divine man. He is the God man. He is the great I am. And so throughout the gospel of John, we see Jesus say, I am, I am, I am. And of course, these words echo the Old Testament uh, self-revelation, declar declarations of God himself to Moses and others saying, I am. I am that I am. And Jesus, as he passes by the disciples, he reveals his glory as the one and only, the God of heaven and earth. And he says, take heart, it is I am. 
It is me, the living God, and what wondrous comfort there is in these words and in his drawing near and in his passing by. The Lord of glory, the one who passes over the waters as over a smooth road, comes to us in the midst of the terrors and struggles of this world. He reveals himself to us. And he calls on us to trust in him, to rest in him, take heart, have courage. It is I, I am with you. If I am for you, who can be against you? Whom shall you fear? Mark simply tells us that Jesus gets in the boat and immediately the wind ceased. We know from the gospel of Matthew that Peter you know, Peter, impetuous Peter, attempted to go to Jesus by water. He attempts to jump out of the boat and walk to Jesus. If Jesus can walk on the water, well, he can help me walk on the water. And of course, we know from the story uh, that he gets overwhelmed by the waves with fear and with doubt. And in the midst of it, he cries out to the Lord to save him. Mark doesn't mention this. He simply says that the disciples were utterly astounded. What other response could there be? Friends, do you see Jesus for who he is? Paul describes him this way in his letter to the Colossians. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The seas were his. The wind was his. And this Lord Jesus, creator of heaven and earth, the one who rules over the wind and the waves, Paul goes on to say this of him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. First, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, friends, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, who had hard hearts, are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if you indeed continue in faith, stable and steadfast. Do you see Jesus? Do you put your trust in the glorious one who draws near to us to save us? We have a problem not dissimilar to the disciples. We are often blind to who Jesus is. Um, And that's what I want to look at is I want us to see, behold our blindness to Jesus, to see our blindness. The disciples were utterly astonished. You see, even here in the midst of the boat, they struggled to understand who it was that came to them. They knew it was Jesus, but they still were, were, their mind just was having trouble getting wrapped around who this one was. Mark says of them that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. These are really hard words. 
In fact, this idea of hardened hearts are the same words in the Gospel of Mark used to describe the hardened hearts of the Pharisees who couldn't see Jesus. Worse yet, we know in Scripture that others, like Pharaoh, hardened their hearts, unwilling to bow before the living God. And I think it's important for us to consider what it means to have hard hearts. Certainly, there is a matter of degree when it comes to these persons. But the root of the problem is the same. It's unbelief. It says that they did not understand about the loaves, and so they presumably did not understand about his passing by and drawing near to them, and his declaration that it is I was a revelatory declaration. They, they didn't understand. But they're not the only ones in our text that don't understand. We, we know from last week that the crowds um, who enjoyed this miraculous meal didn't understand. They were ready to crown him as the Messiah. They wanted to make Jesus into something that fits their paradigm. And later in our text, when they finally get across the lake, once again, he ministers to the crowds, and the crowds bring the sick, and the sick come and are healed. And what you get is a sense of this is who Jesus is. He's the healer. He's the one who fixes our bodily problems, our physical ailments. And we often see Jesus, I think, how we want to see him rather than how he reveals himself to us. We see him as the one to bring justice rather than the one to satisfy divine justice. Um, and, and this is the crowds, right? Just as the crowds that were fed were ready to crown him in order to overthrow Rome, they, they felt a sense of injustice and they wanted justice rather than seeing him as the, the bread of life, rather than seeing him as the one who would lay down his life, whose body would be broken for them because of their sin so that God's wrath might be satisfied. They saw him as a means to an end. I think sometimes we view Jesus' main goal as saving us from our worldly problems to give us justice in this life rather than seeing our need for him to satisfy divine justice for us. Or we see him as the one to bring relief to life's trials rather than the one who ordains each trial for our good and his glory. Uh, you know, the disciples throughout these accounts are frustrated with Jesus that he allows them to go through all the various trials of ministry and even this trial of getting to the other side of the lake through a windstorm. Whereas Jesus brings these trials into their life that he might reveal himself to them and reveal his power and his grace. And I wonder, do we see the trials in our life in the same way as an opportunity for God to reveal himself and his power? Or do we see it, you know, as ah, this thing that the Lord just needs to get rid of because it's annoying? Or we see him as the one to bring physical healing rather than the one, than the one who restores our souls. This was the longing of the crowds on the other side. There seems to be their main concern was with regaining their physical well-being rather than seeing Jesus 
and his signs of healing as the inbreaking of that eternal kingdom of the hope of restoration that goes beyond the body. It is included with the body, but it's more than that. It was to prepare them for life everlasting. We're often blind to Jesus. But this brings me to my final point in conclusion. See Jesus in all his compassion. When the Lord passed by Moses on the mountain, he put Moses in the cleft of a rock. He hid him away. He shielded him from the power and judgment and wrath of God. He shielded him for Moses was a man, a sinner. But he revealed his grace and mercy to God. And as he passed by Moses, he declared his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus is the merciful and gracious God. He comes out and he meets the disciples in the whirlwind and he enters their boat and he stills the wind. Despite their hardness of heart. Despite it, he understands in their weakness and in their sin that they cannot fully see yet. And the rest of the gospel is that unfolding of who Jesus is so that by the time they get to the cross, even there they, they struggle to see. But when they get to the resurrection, their eyes are open. Jesus goes with them to the other side of the lake to Gennesaret and he heals the physical needs of hurting people knowing full well that they don't get who he is yet. He's patient with them, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. They'll follow him as well in blindness and hardness of heart all the way to the cross Many will abandon him. Some will yell, crucify him. His closest disciples will flee. And yet the Lord of glory and of grace bears with them. He draws near to them. He shows them his mercy and grace because this is who he is. He is the living God, creator of heaven and earth, and he is our redeemer. Friends, despite our blindness and hardness of heart and our misunderstandings of who he is, the Lord Jesus draws near to us and he reveals to us his glory and his love. We live, you know, in a strange time, in a trying time, in a time not outside the purview of the sovereign hand of God. In fact, at a time when he desires to show us his glory. Yes, in judgment, but also in mercy and grace. And he calls us to rest and trust in him. And though we don't see fully, though we get a partial backside look at the glory of God in some sense, we see more clearly than Moses because we see Jesus the one who laid down his life 
the one who was broken for us, the one who had all authority in heaven and earth and who laid his glory aside, that we, that we might receive grace. The Lord God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, draws near to you, full of compassion and grace. What a glorious God we have. What a glorious Savior. Let's pray.